0: This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program.
1: Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is John Amarino, former commissioner of the Southern Conference and the author of A Proud Athletic History, 100 Years of the Southern Conference. John, welcome to the Journal.
0: Thank you, Walter. Pleasure to be here.
1: All right. Let's talk a little bit about John Amarino and how you ended up living in Spartanburg and being the commissioner of the Southern Conference.
0: Well, I, uh, I thought I was going to be the next great sports writer when I uh, graduated college and uh, went to work for a newspaper for a couple of years and then got a phone call from a former college classmate saying, uh, uh, would you like to enter the world of college athletics? He was the sports information director at Georgetown University. He needed an assistant. He remembered me from school. I went down, interviewed, got the job at Georgetown, and then, uh, you know, gradually went from publicity to administration at various stops along the way, Uh, Jacksonville University, Sunbelt Conference, uh, Northeast Conference, where I was the commissioner for nine years. I always had my eye on the Southern Conference. My boss at the Sunbelt Conference uh, was a gentleman named Vic Bubis, who was a Mm-hmm. Uh, tremendous basketball coach at Duke and had played in the Southern Conference when he was at North Carolina State, undergraduate. And he told me great stories about the Southern Conference. I met my wife uh, while we were um, both in Charlotte. I was getting ready for a basketball tournament. She was working for the Convention and Visitors Bureau. So she wanted to move to the Carolinas. So when the Southern Conference opportunity opened up. I certainly applied and was fortunate enough to get the job.
1: All right. Just one more question. You said when you were in school and you had your buddy, where'd you go to college?
0: I went to St. Bonaventure University in uh, Olean, New York.
1: And they were at that point in what athletic league? Uh,
0: I think they were basically an independent. They were not really part of a conference back then. Uh, Mm -hmm. in In the 70s, Not all the schools were affiliated. They were part of something called the ECAC, but not a real multi-sport conference.
1: Okay. Well, I'm a Davidson graduate, a little bit older than you, but St. Bonaventure and St. John's were two of the schools that Davidson was playing back in the Fred Hetzel
0: era.
1: The history of this conference is a fascinating one, and many of the schools in our state at one time or another have been or are members of the Southern Conference, but the evolution of this conference, I think, is also a story of the evolution of athletics in the United States so i 'm going to toss the ball to you and you tell us about how the conference came about
0: well that's that's entirely true, everything you said, and I, I think many people don't don 't realize uh, the the strong roots in this part of the country that came through the Southern Conference. In the, in the late uh, 1910s and, and 1920 in particular, there were about 35 to 40 colleges that were part of something called the Southern Intercollegiate Athletic Association, which was kind of an umbrella group to promote some championships in select sports, uh, a little bit of scheduling, and try and adopt certain rules so that schools would play by similar rules. The SIAA, however, was not ready to eliminate allowing freshmen to compete. And there were a number of schools that are now members of the SEC uh, and ACC that were members of this organization that did not believe freshmen should compete in their first year in college. And so, they met in late uh, December of 1920 to talk about the idea of forming a new conference. And talks continued, and, and finally, in February of 1921, in conjunction with the basketball championship run by the SIAA, 15 colleges and universities from the South met in Atlanta And on February 25th, which is the actual birthday of the Southern Conference, they made the announcement that a new conference was going to be formed. Now, I mentioned there were 15 schools that met to talk about this, but only 14 of them became charter members. The the 15th was Tulane, and I think they did not join right away because LSU had been invited to attend this meeting but said no thank you. Um, And so I think Tulane hesitated to join without LSU going along. So there were 14 charter members. All of them were large state schools uh, such as Alabama, Auburn, uh, University of North Carolina, Maryland, uh, Georgia Tech. The only private school of the original 14 charter members was uh, Washington and Lee. And on February 25th, as I mentioned, they made the announcement that they would form a new conference to be called the Southern Intercollegiate Conference. Well, as you might expect, this was very confusing because you still had this other umbrella group, the Southern Intercollegiate Athletic Association. Now you had the Southern Intercollegiate Conference. So within two years, they they, uh, made an adoption to change the name to the Just Southern Conference. But what I think is always fascinating to a lot of people and what you alluded to is that almost all the members of the current SEC and a majority of the members of the current ACC were members of the Southern Conference at one time or another.
1: Well, the conference started out with 14 members and then it very quickly ballooned.
0: It went uh, all the way to 23 within uh, six or seven years the very next year, in 1922, they added Virginia and, I think, uh, LSU and Tulane and a few others. But you're right. It got to 23 very quickly. And even at that point, just four or five years into it, there were signs that this was not going to hold. The, the, the scheduling was a nightmare uh, because you'd, you'd, you had teams going from up in Virginia and Maryland all the way down to Baton Rouge— Uh, West to uh, Knoxville for Tennessee. And so it it, uh, quickly, there were fissures that started to appear and talk of, hey, is this really going to work? Because it was hard to to name a football champion. The basketball teams did not play the same schedule every year. And uh, it, it wasn't too long before people started saying... I don't know if this is going to hold.
1: Well, you mentioned difficulties because remember back in the 1920s, you couldn't just hop on a plane and fly from uh, Columbia, South Carolina to uh, New, Orleans, New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, train, but even that was not fast or easy. Yes, you might be able to travel from D.C. to Atlanta, but uh, you know to get to Gainesville, to get to Knoxville, it wasn't easy. And for a while, the conference let the sports writers decide who the champion would be, didn't they?
0: Yeah. Can you imagine how that would play today if, uh, if uh, that was the final determination? There was a, uh, an Alabama alum who decided that he would offer a trophy to the winner of, of the football championship as determined by sports writers. And so you had numerous occasions where one team would play five league games and go 4-1 and one, and another team might play three league games and go 3-0 and oh, and then they'd leave it up to the sports writers and so the undefeated team didn't always win the championship and uh, as I said it wasn't too long before some of the schools started talking among themselves as to hey are we going to be able to make this work
1: yes and I think it was interesting they did have a basketball tournament the Southern Conference has the oldest continuous conference championship in basketball yes um and at a conference basketball tournament those who wanted to secede and leave made their announcement
0: yeah that's uh, that's correct in it was 1932 actually is when uh the the members of what is now the sec announced that they were going to leave and actually they did that at a meeting in december of 32 and they and it was going to be immediate uh, they did not wait for the spring sports, and it was, it was the uh, president of the conference at the time was the president at Georgia. His last name was Sanford, Stedman Sanford, and he announced it in the meeting, and it was uh, um, quite a shock, I'm sure, to the other schools, but 13 of the 23 schools left to become the uh, members of the SEC, and that also included schools like Sewanee and Tulane that were members of the SEC at one time but uh, of course are not any longer.
1: All right so we've got the SEC seceding but the Southern Conference still exists and between 1930 and 1940 it, it grows. This is when schools that for many years were associated with the Southern Conference joined and I'm thinking about the Citadel, Davidson, Furman, Richmond, William and Mary, and they joined VMI, which had been one of the older members of the Southern Conference, and George Washington. So you've got really a group of schools that are pretty much the same size in terms of of student body. They do add what I considered a real outlier, West Virginia University in 1950 because it's totally different from the rest of them. Um, so it's it's small, basically liberal arts schools that are part of what those of us who went to college in the 60s considered the Southern Conference.
0: Yeah, when the SEC left, the, the schools that formed the SEC left in 32, the, the remainder of the Southern Conference now was looking to grow and get back to a, 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 what they felt was a, a, an optimal number. And Duke and Washington and Lee were the only two private institutions in the conference, and they were looking to get more private institutions in. So they looked at Richmond and they looked at Furman and uh, the Citadel, while a state institution kind of acts like a private institution being a military college. And, and so there was a lot more diversity uh, among the membership. But there, the, the reasons why the SEC schools left would eventually come back to haunt the Southern Conference in the early 1950s, and that's ultimately what led to the split
1: that formed the ACC. And the issue is freshman football players?
0: That was, that was one of the issues. The, the bigger schools, the, the large state schools, uh, with, with much larger enrollments, could afford to have freshmen not compete on varsity teams, the the smaller private schools uh, did not want to have the added expense of funding freshman teams, and so they wanted freshmen to be eligible right away. That was a sticking point. Another sticking point was in the in the early days of the Southern Conference, and we found this out uh, by discovering the minutes that that of uh, the conference in a couple of binders that were sitting in a uh, storage room in my office that I was not aware existed, but they, the minutes go all the way back to 1921 to the founding minute, uh, meeting. There were schools that wanted initially wanted to eliminate recruiting, not not allow coaches to go out and recruit. There was actually a resolution made early on that went nowhere that would have had coaches simply train athletes about decisions during in-games and, and not actually coach the teams themselves. The, the, the president who made this resolution found that to be a very distasteful thing, that coaches would be the, the main uh, um, cogs in, in the uh, athletic machine. Can you imagine if that was uh, uh, upheld today? But the, the biggest single reason, I think, why the ACC schools decided enough was enough with staying within the Southern Conference, the membership had voted to not permit teams to go to bowl games. And in 1951, Maryland and Clemson, I believe, both earned uh, the invitation to a bowl game and were denied being able to attend by the membership. Well, they both went anyway. They, they simply disobeyed the rule and they went and then they asked for forgiveness but by 1952-53 it was it was obvious that this was not going to hold and the ACC split occurred at a spring meeting in Greensboro, North Carolina. The commissioner of the conference at the time was Wallace Wade who was had been the football coach at both Alabama and Duke was a very renowned coach and uh, he said that knowing Duke as well as he did, he's, he did not see it coming. But uh, I believe uh, in the research I did, most of the observers felt that uh, the league was not going to hold with the large state schools playing with uh, the smaller private schools.
1: You, you mentioned that Clemson and, and Maryland disobeyed the conference rules and they were penalized.
0: Yeah, they were. they were not given a conference schedule the following year. They were told they could only play, I think it was three home football games the following year. And Maryland still went seven and two after being penalized with only three home games and would have been invited to a bowl game. But they said, no, we can't. Uh, The football coach at Maryland at the time was very upset with that. And um, he must have gotten the year of his president. And then I think it was just dominoes falling Uh, And they made the announcement, as I said, in 53.
1: John, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. And I'm talking to John Amarino, who is the former commissioner of the Southern Conference. And we're talking about the history of that conference. John, you mentioned Wallace Wade. When he was in Alabama, that was when Southern football really took off. Alabama won the Rose Bowl but they want it as a Southern Conference team, not as a Southeastern Conference team.
0: That's right. And as a matter of fact, the, um, the 1926 Rose Bowl is considered a landmark event because it was the first time that a team from the South uh, won a major bowl game. They beat the University of Washington. Um, and, and early when early in the decade, you know, the, it was considered that the, the prime areas for college football were the Northeast. with You had Yale and Princeton. That's where the sport was first played. Um, and then on, in the West and in the Big Ten. Um, people didn't think about the South having great prowess in college football. And it was Wallace Wade's teams at Alabama that, that changed that perception remarkably.
1: All right. So we, we've got the, the ACC formed. University of South Carolina, Clemson are both both part of that. NC State, UNC, Duke, Wake Forest, which had been a, a late joiner, really to the yes to the Southern Conference. In fact, it was a th- I think asked to join about the same time that the Citadel and Davidson and those schools were in the mid 30s.
0: That's right. They actually put a uh, they had a meeting and put a list of eight schools on the blackboard. And they wanted to add six. They, they were at 10. They thought 16 would be a good number. So each school that was on the blackboard had to get at least six votes to be voted in. And Wake Forest was one. Richmond, we talked about the others. The two that did not get in, uh, I think Presbyterian College got maybe two votes. And Center College of Kentucky was on the board but got zero votes. Another interesting thing during all this time, really up to 1951, the, the conference had no league office and no commissioner. All the all the decisions, all the policies, and and the constitution and bylaw regulations that were amended were handled by committees made up of athletic directors, sometimes presidents, usually faculty representatives. Uh, the first commissioner of the conference was Wallace Wade. And he didn't begin his duties until uh, January 1st of 1951.
1: For a while, he actually served as commissioner of both the Southern Conference and the ACC.
0: Yeah, that's uh, I, I, in doing the research, I found that to be astonishing, mm. but it's true. He, he spent one year as the commissioner of both the new ACC and the Southern Conference. The ACC ha- schools had a lot of respect for him, of course, um, and they asked him, and he accepted and, and told the Southern Conference schools, I will not be uh, uh, negligent in my duties to you, but I, I'll try it if, if you'll let me do it. And for one year, he, he was the commissioner of both. You would never see that today.
1: John, as we're talking about the formation of the conferences before the breakup in, in the 1950s, the University of Virginia had withdrawn from the Southern Conference altogether right
0: yeah I believe in uh, 1937 they decided that uh, they, they had bigger plans for their athletic program uh, but they were there was no ACC at the time they were not geographically a good fit for the SEC so they just simply went as an independent they left the SOCON and they continued to play the schools in the Southern Conference But they basically were an independent for about 16 years until the formation of the ACC.
1: Okay. Well, we're now getting into the 50s and the 60s, where the conference is fairly stable. Once the ACC moves out, uh, it's stable until for almost two decades. Again, it's smaller schools, VMI, Citadel, Davidson, Furman, Richmond, William & Mary, George Washington, West Virginia, VPI. The one breakup comes when uh, VPI withdraws, I think, in the 64 or 65. And they're replaced by a school, because I remember I was at Davidson at the time. They asked East Carolina to come in. And um, my friends at Furman said, what is our conference doing, asking somebody like East Carolina, a a large state-supported school, to come into the conference?
0: It's funny. That has always been the part of the DNA of the Southern Conference, the large state schools on one hand and the smaller private institutions and military colleges on the other. And it's just been through the history of the conference and to the conference's credit, it's been able to withstand all those changes and remain relevant and thriving in today's age. But Virginia Tech was, you're correct, in 1965 when they left, they were the last charter member, the last of the original 14 to leave the conference. Uh, Washington and Lee had left, I believe, in the late 50s after a a cheating scandal uh, had had ripped through the athletic program. The membership, uh, the board there, decided they were going to de-escalate athletics and drop down out of Division I. And so they left the conference. And yeah, East Carolina joined, and I'm sure there were comments about, you know, why, why are they being added? The same thing happened uh, back in the 90s when uh, the, the conference added Wofford. A lot of people said, why are they adding this school with less than 2,000 students, you know, n- have not been a Division I program? What are they going to bring to the table well, and, and as we know now, Wofford has had great success both in football and pr- primarily in men's basketball in the recent years. So uh, I, I've, I've always felt like if you chart the history of the schools in this conference, uh, nobody joins to become the doormat. They always get better by being associated with good programs.
1: The conference formation that we just talked about, that membership stayed pretty stable for about tw- almost 20 years. You mentioned it earlier when UVA withdrew because they had bigger aspirations. Uh, that seems to be a recurring theme for why people or schools withdraw. Certainly, it was the
0: case with, with schools like uh, the larger state schools, particularly West Virginia, mm-hmm. Virginia, uh, Virginia Tech. They, they left, all left for the same reason. They, they saw the opportunity to uh, expand their footprint, become more than just a regional institution in athletics. The, the the big cataclysm that occurred, though, that, that was the next shakeup for the Southern Conference was in the 1970s when the NCAA basketball tournament started really getting a lot of attention. They moved the final four to a Monday night championship. The, the championship used to be played on a Saturday afternoon. And, and when that happened, now some of these newer uh, multi-sport conferences grew up and were formed so that more programs would have access to the basketball tournament the basketball tournament started becoming uh, a major sporting event certainly not what it is today but uh, it had a lot more visibility than it did when i was a kid when you know the championships uh, the final four was played on a thursday night and a saturday afternoon when that happened you had conferences like the big east and the Colonial Athletic Association, and the Northeast Conference, all kind of formed, um, and, and that led to a lot of dominoes falling within the SOCON. Richmond left, William & Mary, George Washington, they, they went to the Colonial, um, and then the, the Southern Conference kind of you know filled in around that, adding Appalachian State, Western Carolina, eventually uh, Georgia Southern, East Tennessee State, and that's when the conference started adding a lot of the members that are still within the league today.
1: There are times when the conference, it seemed, acted not in its own interest. And I go back to the, the 1950s; they're penalizing Clemson and Maryland for going to bowl games, not let, wanting their teams to go to bowl games. And when I was at Davidson, when West Virginia knocked. Davidson, one of the top teams in the country, out in the tournament. The NIT, which was then actually a bigger tournament, wanted Davidson to play, and the conference said it would distract from the dignity of the conference. They actually used a term like that. Hardly the best way you want to promote your conference. They just uh, said, no go.
0: You, you, you have to wonder, you know, again, who was making those decisions? Was it really the presidents and chancellors, or was it faculty members who were assigned to the the athletic program because there's some strange propositions that were brought up by the by the league, but there's no question that uh, the the bowl game ban and the the decision to keep restrict Davidson from playing in the NIT, uh, you have to wonder why the the Southern Conference would do that.
1: There was a, and you have a wonderful quote in in your book from Sports Illustrated, Joe Jair of Sports Illustrated said. The tiny Presbyterian school was the obvious choice to represent the Conference Against Providence in Philadelphia on March 8th, but few things are logical in the Southern Conference, a strange assortment of public, private, and military schools that has changed borders more often than Czechoslovakia.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I think that quote really did uh, summarize a a lot of the sentiment uh, at the time. It was like, what are these guys doing?
1: Well, it, it had taken Tom Scott years to get the basketball tournament from Richmond and a very antiquated arena to the Charlotte Coliseum, which would have been a showcase for Davidson, but twice they lost the conference title. It actually made sense in terms of geography of, of the conference, but those are things that happened.
0: Yeah. And, and uh, I'll tell you one other funny story. You know, in in 2008, when the recession hit the country, um, we were scheduled to, to bring our basketball tournament in 2010 to, uh, excuse me, in 2009 to Chattanooga, which is on the, the edge of the conference geographically. And so uh, this would also have been Steph Curry's senior year. And so the conference... At my suggestion, we moved our championship to Charlotte for one year in two thousand and nine for two reasons. Number one, because it was going to be, as you mentioned, very geographically central for all the schools to get to and make it easier for fans to get there in a what had become a very tough economy. And number two, I thought, you know, maybe uh, Steph might like the idea of playing his his final championship. Uh, in front of his home fans, uh, you know, near where he grew up in his home city. Of course, uh, when he had the opportunity to go to the N- NBA, he didn't worry about the Southern <laughs> Conference Championship location. Uh, he uh, he was first-round pick, and the the rest is history, and I think he made the right decision.
1: Well, you had a, a couple of really wonderful moments as as conference commissioner, did you not? Appalachian State being beating the University of Michigan at the big house. Uh, I remember watching that game. And then, of course, Davidson with Steph Curry uh, going to the Elite Eight.
0: Those were, those were two uh, wonderful memories. The App State win at Michigan, I was kind of keeping track of the score early and then went outside to play catch with my son. When I, when I checked my phone again for the score, I saw that Appalachian was ahead I said, uh, PJ, we got to go inside. I got to check this. So the, the catch was over. But as they, you know, they, that was the very first telecast of the Big Ten Network. And I was able to watch the end of the game on one of the channels. And when the kick was blocked, Michigan had attempted a field goal to win the game. Uh, Appalachian blocked it, and, and the game was was over the phone just started ringing. I got calls from the New York Times and the Associated Press and uh, Sports Illustrated and the uh, sporting news. It was it was a great moment. And then to top that off, several months later, your alma mater, Davidson, makes that phenomenal run, starting off in Raleigh, uh, beating Gonzaga and Georgetown, come from behind, went over Georgetown to get to the Sweet 16. We go to Detroit. And they knock off uh, Wisconsin, I think the Big Ten champion that year. And now they're one game away from the Final Four and actually had a shot at the buzzer that if it had gone in, uh, Davidson would have gone to the Final Four.
1: Well, you very modestly did not include in in your book, there was a quote. It was a Sports Illustrated article done in spring of 2008 about mid-major conferences. And they highlighted... The Southern Conference and and you because of the Appalachian State win and the Davidson run.
0: Well, that was all very flattering, and of course the the uh, the cover of Sports Illustrated with uh, with App State's uh, a quarterback on it. I mean, I I had we had that framed and that's hung in my office for about ten years. Mm -hmm. I had very little to do with those two successes, but I certainly enjoyed them, and they were great ways to. Promote the league. I remember a basketball coach telling me that he would tell recruits that, you, you know what Davidson did? Well, we play in the same conference as Davidson, and, and he had success using that line for a few years.
1: Well, when did the conference establish its headquarters in Spartanburg?
0: That happened in, in 2003. My predecessor uh, at the uh, conference was Danny Morrison, who also had been the athletic director at Wofford College. Uh, prior to that, and Danny was, I believe his wife was from Spartanburg. The office at the time was in Asheville where the conference tournament, uh, basketball tournament was played for many, many years, and uh, Danny uh, put out feelers to four or five locations. I think Greenville was one, Spartanburg, Charlotte, uh, Asheville. The Spartanburg offer was was a really good one. They basically gave the conference a dollar a year rent on a uh, an old mill building that was abandoned. The conference retrofitted it. It's about 5,000, 6000 square feet over two floors, and it's 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 now part of the uh, Spartanburg Regional uh, Medical Center facility, um, and it has been a great location for the conference office. But they moved there in 03 in a, a regular smaller office while the uh, upfitting was taking place, and then moved into the current location in '05.
1: John, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that I'm talking to John Amarino, who is the former commissioner of the Southern Conference, about the history of that conference, which, as we've mentioned, is located in Spartanburg. All right, John, we've talked about the formation of the conference and its, its changes over time. Who is in the conference now?
0: Right now, the membership consists of 10 institutions in six states. Um, you have um, the Citadel and Wofford and Furman in the state of South Carolina, uh, UNC Greensboro and Western Carolina in North Carolina, VMI, uh, Sanford University in Alabama, uh, East Tennessee State and the University of Tennessee Chattanooga, and uh, mercer university in macon georgia
1: okay so that's the that's the current configuration but the way the ncaa has organized itself over the last 20 years has also had an impact on the conference and i know every time i hear on tv well this is a 1a conference this is a 1a this is a level three how about just going through that with us
0: Sure. And that's, that's always been a battle and continues to be a battle that, that conferences like the Southern Conference have to fight. In the 1970s, late 1970s, the NCAA at the time was meeting in a, a yearly convention where each institution, all 280 or so, whatever there were back then, each institution had one vote to vote on everything. And this used to stick in the craw of the large state schools that played what you would call big-time football, that, that a school like Furman or Wofford would have the same vote, same weighted vote as South Carolina or Clemson. And so they got the NCAA to agree to go to two divisions. And it was based on the amount of scholarship aid that you gave in all the sports. So there was a 1A that consisted of Schools like South Carolina and Clemson and, and Penn State and, and Syracuse, et cetera. And then there was a 1AA, which are what is now known as the football championship subdivision. But, but these schools would not compete in bowl games. They would only have 63 football scholarships instead of 85, as the bigger schools do. And so that would be the delineation. Now, initially, the the so- Southern Conference stayed with the larger group, but it was it was pretty obvious that was not going to be sustainable. And within a few years, they dropped, so to speak, to the one AA level and competed in football championships and, and wound up having great success in that. The reason that those labels are not no longer used uh, is because we. We, I say we when I was the commissioner, we constantly heard talk of 1AA baseball programs or 1AA soccer programs. There's no such thing. The 1A and 1AA designation was only for football, only the amount of scholarships that you gave in football. But people were using it to recruit against and saying, well, they're AA, that's, they're not Division I. The, the reality is, the Southern Conference, and all of the schools in the FCS are Division I. They simply play football at a different level.
1: Okay. Uh, You mentioned the conference has had success. Who are some of the national champions that came out of what was the 1AA?
0: Well, Furman won it all in 1988. uh, When Georgia Southern was a member of the conference, they had great success and won a couple of championships. Uh, of course, Appalachian State won three in a row in the uh, the mid-2000s uh, and really established a name for themselves and, and got enough credibility, I think, in their program to the, where they are now. They were able to move to the Sunbelt Conference and now have had success winning several bowl games. So Wofford has had gr- a great run. They haven't won a championship, but they've had a great run getting to the semifinals in the FCS championships. So... The, the Southern Conference for many years was, was labeled as kind of the SEC of of 1AA and then FCS. They have not sent as many teams to the championship game in recent years, but I know that the coaches and the administrators are working on that.
1: All right, and certainly in basketball, the conference from its very inception and even down to today has, has done very, very well in basketball.
0: Yes, and a lot of the attention in the last... Fifty years comes from your alma mater. I mean, Davidson had the wonderful teams with Lefty Drizel coaching in the mid '60s. You mentioned Fred Hetzel, uh, Dick Snyder, people like that. Terry Holland became the coach after Lefty went to Maryland. They had tremendous success, uh, and then Davidson kind of uh, you know regenerated that awesome success with the Bob McKillop teams uh, that featured Steph Curry and 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 some other great players. And, you know, they continue to be a very successful program. But Wofford, I mentioned, has been in – I think they've been in now five uh, NCAAs, I believe, um, Mm -hmm. in in the past 15 years or so, 10, 15 years. Uh, North Carolina Greensboro, uh, who was the conference's representative this year, uh, has won two of the last four. ETSU has become uh, a player in men's basketball. Um, Mercer, the year before they joined the conference, knocked off Duke in the first round and and really was one of the Cinderella teams of the tournament that year. So basketball is a sport that the conference can really make its name in because it competes at the very highest level. In football, the Southern Conference can have great success and has in the FCS playoffs, but, but to the general public, they're not competing at the highest level. They're not competing against... Clemson and USC and, and schools like that.
1: Let's now turn to women's athletics. How is that organized in the conference, and when did it really come about?
0: The, the Southern Conference really was one of the pioneers of, of uh, sponsoring women's athletics. Um, in the early 1980s, the NCA had no involvement with women's athletics. It was run by an organization called the Association of Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, AIAW. Uh, finally, in 1984, the NCA took women's sports under their umbrella. And that very same year, the Southern Conference established championships for women in three sports. Uh, so the Southern Conference has had women's championships and sponsored it as long as the NCAA has. And uh, in recent years, the, the league has continued to add championship opportunities for women. Rifle had been a sport Back in the 1950s and 60s, it was discontinued when there were changes in the membership. It was brought back about four or five years ago. Women's soccer and, and women's tennis were added. Lacrosse is the most recent sport on the women's side, too. That was added about four years ago. And uh, Mercer and Furman have had great success in that sport. So the, the conference now treats all the championships basically the same. The, the women's opportunities for championships and NCA competition uh, rivals the men's championship opportunities. And, uh, you know, the, the conference has always been a leader in that. And I think when that was started in the 80s by a, a commissioner named Ken Gurman, subsequent commissioners have always taken great pride in adding to what he started and making it even better.
1: All right. When when they first added women's athletics, what were the three team three sports that were involved?
0: The first three were cross country, uh, volleyball, and basketball.
1: Okay, all right. When you mentioned cross country, that jogged something in my memory. Is when the conference was first founded in the nineteen twenties. The most important sport, the biggest sport, was track and field.
0: Yeah. Then and again, that's that's something that I think a lot of people would find puzzling these days, but the Olympics had such a hold on people back then, and, and the very first NCAA championship was a track and field meet, and the Southern Conference had its first championship in track and field. It was held in Montgomery, Alabama at a, a facility that still exists today called the Crampton Bowl, uh, where they, they still play football games now, but track and field was was enormous back then. One of, the, one of the most fascinating pictures to me that I was able to find and include in the book is a picture of a, a pole vaulter from Clemson named Ross O'Dell who uh, vaulted, I think it was 13 feet 3 inches, to set a mark uh, in the 1920s that held for 30 years. But, but the interesting thing to me in the photo is you can see him clearing the bar there is nothing on the other side where he's going to land just cinders there's oh. no no mat nothing so he's falling from about 13 feet onto a, a pile of cinders on oh the my ground God.
1: <laughs> oh <my God>. okay <laughs> all right looking back over the history of the conference what things stand out to you that you would like to share with us
0: well, I, I, there are there are any number of things I can mention. I, I think one of the things that impressed me the most personally was I had been in two other conferences, and I was the commissioner of another conference. And when I got here uh, in 2006 and assumed the duties at the Southern, it, it always struck me as to how deep the roots are in this part of the country for the institutions that either are currently members or were once members. I remember... First time I went through the TSA screening at uh, Greenville Spartanburg Airport, I had a, a Southern Conference bag that I was checking through. And uh, the agent said, oh, you are you with the Southern Conference? I love that conference. We've My family has followed it for years. And I would constantly hear that. And as you drive around, you'd see Citadel bumper stickers or Furman bumper stickers. And, and obviously, you know, when I when I got here to the studio today, I walked across the street to look a, a little bit at the, the football stadium where USC plays and, you know, thinking that at one point they were members of this conference. And, and so the, that has always stuck with me as to how deep the roots are in college athletics and especially the Southern Conference in this part of the country. Uh, the, other, the other aspect that I think most people are not aware of is what we've already talked about, the, the total broad span of institutions that once called the Southern Conference home. There are there's a, there's a chart in the book that lists all of them, the year they joined, the year they departed. And if you count them up, there's 44, which means there's 34 former Division I institutions that were members of the Southern Conference. And we, in doing some research for that, we found that there is no other conference that has had as many members at one time. The, the, the SOCON is the fifth-oldest Division I Conference. And so I checked with the Big Ten and the Missouri Valley, the Pacific 12, and a couple of the others who have been around a long, long time. None of them have had as many former members as the Southern Conference. Maybe you could look at that as a negative, but I always took it as a positive that the conference was able to create a good home for these programs. And then when they left, for whatever the reason— Uh, the the conference and its leadership was always able to reinvent itself and stay relevant
1: well it's it's an interesting conference and uh, as as you mentioned it is as diverse today as it ever has been Uh, you have you have another quote in here and I think it's fair you put it in the book (laughs) 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 okay the constant upheaval within the SOCONS membership hardly went unnoticed the saying, the old gray mare ate what she used to be can apply, be applied to the southern, wrote column Stubby Currents in the Bluefield West Virginia Daily Telegraph. There is even one rumor that the NCAA would withdraw its automatic bid to the SC basketball winner for the conference playoffs. That was back in the 1970s. And that would have been folks of my generation seeing what the conference had been in the 60s and all of a sudden in the late 70s things changed.
0: Yeah, change has always been, been a part of this history for a for 100 years, and uh, I'm sure it's going to continue. You know, I, I get asked, I uh, used to get asked a lot in my last year or two there, you know, did I see more realignment coming? I, I, I think realignment has always occurred in college athletics, and these days it's driven by, you know, media contracts, you know, back Years and years ago, it was driven more by perhaps some academic reasons or geographic reasons. Uh, now it's it's media contracts and how much revenue can the conference bring in. But I don't think the realignment is done. And, and you know, I, I do think, though, that the Southern Conference is poised to withstand and maybe, you know, take advantage of whatever realignment might come come about.
1: One of the things that, of course, happened during the last year, everything has changed. But traveling for college athletic teams has become expensive, sometimes not even possible. And every now and then you will see a a columnist, whether it's the guy who writes that column for the Wall Street Journal once a week is incredible. He talks about, well, maybe there's going to be another Fisher within different conferences because things are a whole lot more difficult now and expensive, And colleges or budgets or whether they're private or public are really under stress.
0: Oh, absolutely. And the one I like to cite to provide an example of what you're talking about, Walter, is, you know, West Virginia is now in the Big 12. I think their nearest rival within the conference is Texas Tech, which is crazy, uh, you know. And and in the Southern Conference, when we had the—we lost five schools in one year. Five schools announced that they were leaving. This was— in t- 2013 and oh. that was uh, that was a tough period i mean we were de-
1: are, are, who were who the five schools that left the
0: five that left were appalachian state and georgia southern who both to their credit made no bones about the fact that they wanted to play football at the bowl level so they were always looking for an opportunity uh, davidson wanted to play in a conference that that put more of an emphasis on basketball with with greater resources Bob McKillop used to always tell me, I know I have to win the tournament or I'm not going to get to the NCA. I, I want to be able to go as an at-large. So they made the move. College of Charleston and Elon both left and went to the Colonial. And I think they went because they're... Geographically, they wanted to recruit more students from the Northeast, and they wanted to play some games up there. So that those were the five that left. But as we look to go from seven to ultimately we wound up at 10. We wanted to keep the geography tight, as tight as possible, for the reasons you cited earlier, the cost, the the trouble, the the wear and tear on on athletes to uh, get on airplanes and wait in, in waiting rooms in airports. And so we were able to get two former members, ETSU and VMI. And then Mercer was a great addition to give the conference a presence again in Georgia, which is an important recruiting state for the for the league members. So the the ten members now, the longest trip is Samford in Birmingham to VMI. That's about eight and a half nine hours. I mean that's a long bus ride, but you can do it. It's not impossible. Uh, everything else is a is a decent car ride or bus ride. And for me as commissioner in Spartanburg, uh, I could be on any one of our campuses in five hours. So I never had to get on an airplane, which was a blessing.
1: Well, one question about your time as as commissioner. How many games did you have to, did you have to, or did you attend in a given week? I mean, you, sometimes you've got two or three different sports going on at the same time.
0: Uh, a lot. <laughs> if, uh, if there was one thing I could have done differently, I might have started off not getting to as many games. But I felt like uh, when I joined, It was important to get to the campuses, and I I know that the presidents, chancellors, and athletic directors always appreciated seeing me uh, at those events. But to answer your question, I would go to at least one football game for all of the teams, preferably at least one home game. And I would go to every one of the schools during basketball season, generally went to 60 to 75% of the championships for at least a day. And one nice thing about living in Spartanburg, as I did and do, Wofford College was literally, you know, five minutes away. So I could see some of our teams play and uh, be home in my driveway while the postgame radio show was still going on. (laughs)
1: All right. John Alford is giving us the wind up sign. Uh, Any last words for our listeners before we sign off today?
0: Well, I hope that uh, uh, people who combine their interest in in not only college sports, but historical uh, information will uh, uh, look up more information about the Southern Conference, perhaps take a look at the book. Mm -hmm. Um, I I do think that uh, uh, what the conference has been able to do over 100 years is remarkable. It's always been fascinating to me how conferences evolve, and and certainly this league has evolved as much as any.
1: All right. John Almarino, former commissioner of the Southern Conference and author of A Proud Athletic History, 100 Years of the Southern Conference. Thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal.
0: Thank you so much, Walter. I've enjoyed it.
1: This is Walter Edgar and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. I found reading John Amarino's History of the Southern Conference almost like a trip down memory lane of what athletics once were in the American South and South Carolina and what they are today. It's an important part of our cultural history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of the journal.
0: Walter Edgar's journal
1: is a production
0: of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.